Chapter 71 We do not even know with certainty if the brothers of the second line possessed the same knowledge as those of the first, or if they were given all the secrets. Fama Fraternitatis in Allgemeine und Generalreformation, Kassel, Wessel, 1614 I told Belbo and Diotalevi they agreed that the secret meaning of the manifestos should be clear even to a diabolical. Now it's all clear, Diotalevi said. We were stuck on the notion that the plan had been blocked at the passage from the Germans to the Paulicians, while in fact it had been blocked in 1584 at the passage from England to France. But why? Belbo asked. What reason can there be that the English were unable to keep their appointment with the French in 1584? The English knew where the refuge was. Seeking truth, he turned to Abulafia. As a test, he asked for two random entries. The output was, Minnie Mouse is Mickey's fiancée, thirty days hath September, April, June, and November. Now let's see, Belbo said. Minnie has an appointment with Mickey, but by mistake she makes it for the thirty-first of September, and Mickey— Hold it, everybody, I said. Minnie could have made a mistake only if her date with Mickey was for October 5th, 1582. Why? The Gregorian reform of the calendar. Why, it's obvious. In 1582, the Gregorian reform went into effect, correcting the Julian calendar, and to make things come out even, ten days in the month of October were abolished, the 5th to the 14th. But the appointment in France is for 1584, St. John's Eve, June 23rd. That's right, but as I recall, the reform didn't go into effect immediately everywhere. I consulted the perpetual calendar we had on the shelf. Here we are. The reform was promulgated in 1582, and the days between October 5th and October 14th were abolished, but this applied only to the Pope. France adopted the new calendar in 1583 and abolished the 10th to the 19th of December. In Germany there was a schism. The Catholic regions adopted the reform in 1584 with Bohemia, but the Protestant regions adopted it in 1775, almost two hundred years later, and Bulgaria, and this is the fact to bear in mind, adopted it only in 1917. Now let's look at England. It adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1752. That's to be expected. In their hatred of the Papists, the Anglicans also held out for two centuries. So you see what happened. France abolished ten days at the end of 1583, and by June 1584 the French were all accustomed to it. But when it was June 23, 1584 in France, in England it was still June 13, and ask yourself whether a good Englishman, Templar though he may have been, would have taken this into account. They drive on the left even today and ignored the decimal system for ages. So then, the English show up at the refuge on what for them is June 23, except that for the French it's already July 3. We can assume the appointment wasn't to take place with fanfares, it would be a furtive meeting at a certain corner at a certain hour. The French go to the place on June 23rd. They wait a day, two days, three, seven, and then they leave, thinking that something has happened. Maybe they give up in despair on the very eve of July 3rd. The English arrive on the 3rd and find nobody there. Maybe they also wait a week and nobody shows. The two grand masters have missed each other. Sublime, Belbo said. That's what happened. But why is it the German Rosicrucians who go public and not the English? I asked for another day, searched my card files, and came back to the office glowing with pride. I had found a clue, an almost invisible clue, but that's how Sam Spade works. Nothing is trivial or insignificant to his eagle eye. Toward 1584 John D., mage and cabalist, 
astrologer to the Queen of England, was assigned to study the reform of the Julian calendar. The English Templars met the Portuguese in 1464. After that date the British Isles seemed to be struck by a cabalistic fervor. Anyway, the Templars work on what they have learned, preparing for the next encounter. John Dee is the leader of this magic and hermetic renaissance. He collects a personal library of four thousand volumes, a library in the spirit of the Templars of Provence. His Mona Sieroglyphica seems directly inspired by the Tabulus Maragdina, the Bible of the Alchemists. And what does John Dee do from 1584 on? He reads the Steganographia of Tritanius. He reads it in manuscript, of course, because it appeared in print for the first time only in the early 17th century. Dee, the Grand Master of the English group that suffered the failure of the missed appointment, wants to discover what happened, where the error lay. Since he is also a good astronomer, he slaps himself on the brow and says, What an idiot I was! He starts studying the Gregorian reform, after he obtains an appanage from Elizabeth, to see how to rectify the mistake, but he realizes it's too late. He doesn't know whom to get in touch with in France. He has contacts, however, in the middle Europeisha area. The Prague of Rudolf II is one big alchemist laboratory, so Dee goes to Prague and meets Kunrat, the author of Amphitheatrum Sapientiae Aeternae, whose allegorical plates later influenced both André and the Rosicrucian manifestos. What sort of relationships does Dee establish? I don't know. Shattered by remorse at having committed an irreparable error, he dies in 1608. Not to worry, though, because in London someone else is at work, a man who everybody now agrees was a Rosicrucian and who spoke of the Rosicrucians in his New Atlantis, I mean Francis Bacon. Did Bacon really talk about them? Belvo asked. Strictly speaking, no, but a certain John Hayden rewrote the New Atlantis under the title The Holy Land, and he put the Rosicrucians in it. But for us that makes no difference. Bacon didn't mention them by name for obvious reasons of discretion, but it's as if he did. And a pox on doubters. Right. It's because of Bacon that attempts are made to strengthen relations between the English and German circles. In 1613 Elizabeth, daughter of James I, now reigning, marries Frederick V, Elector Palatine of the Rhine. After the death of Rudolf II, Prague is no longer the ideal location. Heidelberg is. The wedding of the Elector and the Princess is a triumph of Templar allegories. In the course of the London festivities, Bacon himself is the impresario, and an allegory of mystical knighthood is performed, with an appearance of the knights on the top of a hill. It is obvious that Bacon is now Dee's successor, Grand Master of the English Templar Group. And since he is clearly the author of the plays of Shakespeare, we should also reread the complete works of the Bard, which certainly talk about nothing else but the plan, Belbo said. St. John's Eve, A Midsummer Night's Dream. June 23rd is not midsummer. Poetic license. I wonder why everybody overlooked these clues, these clear indications. It's all so unbearably obvious. We've been led astray by rationalist thought, Diotalevi said. I keep telling you. Let Kasabin go on. It seems to me he's done an excellent job. Not much more to say. After the London festivities, the festivities began in Heidelberg, where Salomon de Caux has built for the elector the hanging gardens of which we saw a dim reflection that night in Piedmont, as you'll recall. And in the course of these festivities an allegorical float appears, celebrating the bridegroom as Jason, and from the two masts of the ship recreated on the float hang the symbols of the Golden Fleece and the Garter. I hope you haven't forgotten that the Golden Fleece and the Garter are also found on the columns of Tomar. Everything fits. 
In the space of a year the Rosicrucian manifestos come out, the appeal that the English Templars, with the help of their German friends, are making to all Europe to reunite the lines of the interrupted plan. But what exactly are they after?'